Due to the graphic nature of the personal accounts and content discussed in this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Many episodes will include graphic personal accounts and discussions of child sexual assault, domestic violence, physical abuse, rape, sexual situations, and suicide. Latter-day Survivors. I'm your host, Sarah Austin. We're joined by Kendra today as well, another one of our fabulous hosts. I'm super excited for our episode today. I'm actually fangirling a little bit. (laughs) Our guest today is Chris Davis. She's the author of the book that's titled Worthy, the Memoir of an Ex-Mormon Lesbian. I actually found her on TikTok. A video of hers came up on my For You page that was one of those, it was talking about, I am ex-Mormon because, and she talked about why she's ex-Mormon. And I don't want to go into her story because that's her story to tell, but what she had to say touched my heart so much because I related so much to it. Um, it's, uh, it, it was like, it could be my story as well. And so I kind of went through all of her TikToks and listen to her stories. And then I went and bought her book and I'm almost done reading it. And it's, it's fantastic. So I 100% recommend anyone listening to this, go buy her book. It's absolutely worth the read. Um, it's a fantastic story. And so Chris, we're so excited to have you here today. Thank you so much for your time. I'm going to hand it over to you and whatever, whatever's healing for you, take it away. Thank you, Sarah. I'm so flattered that you would give me such a great introduction. I'm so glad that we found each other. Uh, I'm thrilled to be on the podcast today. Uh, My book is Worthy, the memoir of an ex-Mormon lesbian, and uh, I can finally say that subtitle without tripping. (laughs) I was going to say that 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 subtitle is a little hard to say, especially because I do, I grew up with a stutter. As I've gotten older, it's gotten a lot better, but memoir is a really hard word (laughs) when you have a stutter. (laughs) I should have considered that before I uh, <laughs> before I named my book. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> um, so I thought I might talk a little bit about the structure of the book just in the beginning, just to give a little intro. Um, it is uh, a book that has uh, some some difficult subject matter, um, but also it has some humorous stories. Um, what I did when I started writing it was that I just 
decided to, to write stream of consciousness and see what came out because I wasn't accustomed to writing. And um, this is my first solo work and I've written essays in the past, but this is my first book that's me all the way through. And so uh, I wasn't sure what I wanted to say yet or how I wanted to say it. And so I ended up with two different, two separate books. And so I just combined them. <laughs> the first half of each chapter tells a nostalgic story of growing up in Bangor, Maine, uh, lots of times with my brother or with my grandmothers or um, just different um, kind of happy, playful, uh, a lot of times uh, humorous uh, stories that, that bring back nostalgia from the 70s and 80s. And then the second half of each chapter is a traumatic story from being in the church, from being queer and from being a woman in the church. And so what I do in each chapter is I develop a theme that runs through both halves of the chapter. And that's generally, that's the title of the chapter. Yeah. So, and I've, I, I've loved that in reading your book, how you have like such a neat, like uh, interesting story of your past and then how you tie it into the church and, and into the trauma and, it's, I, I thought it was very artistic the way you did that. I love that. Yeah. Thanks very much. I, I, uh, I enjoyed actually, uh, the process of writing it. And I had a, an editor that was just amazing. She was phenomenal. And she taught me, uh, better techniques on writing and how to develop things better, how to develop themes, how to, you know, create transitions. And she made me a better writer. So, um, your editor matters. <laughs> true. Um, but uh, the cover of my book is very bright. It's a hand holding a ribbon uh, that's floating up into the air. And the wrist of that hand has forget-me-not flowers on it that are being uh, held to my wrist with a Band-Aid. Mm. And uh, I love it because it's cheerful. It kind of reminds me a little bit of a Mormon ad. Mm -hmm. uh, but also, uh, it's a, there's a nod to trauma. So I think it, I think it fits my story perfectly. I meant to have your book here with me and I forgot. So I had to text oh. my girlfriend and say, hey, can you bring me that book? Because <laughs> I took notes in it that I wanted to share. Oh, sorry. Wonderful. <laughs> I, can't, I can't wait to hear about them. Okay. Yes, I, I love the cover of your book. Thank you. I'm pretty happy with it, too. I I, um, I got uh, a lot of choices on what to pick and I and I like that one the best. So it was nice. Uh, I, I thought maybe I would... <clears throat> Um, start, can I just read the content warning for the book quick? Yeah, absolutely. All right. This book, first of all, um, is not for children. I had, uh, it, it initially I had heard some mothers who were purchasing the book and handing it to their young adolescent girls. And, um, it, it concerns me because there is subject matter in here that needs to be discussed with an adult if a child yeah. is reading it. So um, just that. And then my content warning in the book says, if topics of child sexual abuse, the death of loved ones, religious trauma, or the contemplation of suicide make you uncomfortable, please practice self-care while reading this book. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted that to be upfront. Uh, yeah. And then I, I wrote an introduction, which please don't skip the introduction. <laughs> It's not very long, and it has some important information in there. I know I don't usually read the introduction of a book yet, but I'm letting you know it's important to the story. I think Christina bought the book um, electronically, so we've 
kind of been sharing it. Oh, perfect. Yeah, it's free on Kindle Unlimited. I also put it out to the Mama Dragons uh, for them to read ahead of time if they wanted to. So several, many of them um, took me up on that offer. So there may be digital copies out there. Yeah. Oh, very good. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. I wanted to finish it before the interview today, but I'm a slow reader and I'm old. So I fall <laughs> whenever I sit down to read, I typically fall asleep. But I've made it about three quarters of the way through the book so far. And, okay, and what it. page are you on so I can know? I am on page 109. 109. Okay, I will yeah. not go beyond. Uh, well, you you got to tell your story. <laughs> that's the best chapter in the whole book. Is it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's the pivotal moment when I um when I I talk first about it's called the fight of black belt proportions. I talk about my yeah. experience in the martial arts and then it's the pivotal moment when um my teenager comes out to me as gender queer oh gosh and we have to deal with the bishop about it and uh we we come to the decision that we're we're not going to stick around well now i'm super excited to read that yeah 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 so i've been uh, excited to read it yeah yeah. it's pretty it's pretty impactful i mean i consider that the the most pivotal chapter so um have fun and enjoy it and i can't wait to hear your thoughts on it afterwards Uh, i thought i might just start talking a little bit about my brother uh, he plays a. I just got to that, or I I read that recently. I I don't know if you're going to talk about him, the fact that he passed away, but that broke my heart. I was like, oh my goodness, <laughs> sorry, I didn't mean to jump forward in your story. <laughs> no, it's good, it's good. I I was um. I I just wanted to emphasize you know how close we were and that um. Uh, I tell stories right in the beginning, in the first chapter, about um, just how passive he was and what a great guy he was and as a kid and how mean I was to him as a big sister, Aww. but also just that we um, we had this, like, this communication that was exclusive to us, and we, we would just drop into that... Um, jargon when we got together and so um it's really um special for me to have written about him and share to share him with with the with the world um this first chapter is called cold baths all my life because uh when he was in elementary school he was very young um i can't remember what grade it was like second grade or something but um he was told to do an assignment at school and he was supposed to complain about something in some way, like, you know, what upsets you or what disturbs you. And he titled it Cold Baths All My Life. <laughs> Apparently, uh, I remember, I remember this. I would go first in the bathtub and these were the old days, you know, we didn't empty out the tub and fill it up. We just used, <laughs> we used the same water, you know. And so uh, he would go in after me and uh, the water apparently was always cold. <laughs> but this boy he never complained like he just he just did it he just took it he just endured it and um we had no idea until this assignment came home from school my mom read it and she was like oh my god I didn't realize well she said oh my gosh I didn't realize that I (laughs) (laughs) that I was traumatizing my boy So uh, that is the first half of that chapter. And in the second half of the chapter, I relate that title of his work, of his schoolwork uh, to stepping into the baptismal font, mm. uh, the tepid water. Uh, 
my baptism was something that I did not consent to. I was nine years old. Um, my parents were recently divorced. And um, my mom had full custody, and so she decided that it was time for me to be baptized. I had my bishop's interview uh, alone with the bishop at nine years old in his office, and he asked me if I wanted to be baptized. And my father, who is not a member of the church, has never been, and is a little bit, um, doesn't really like the church. And so he told me what to tell the bishop if I was ever asked this question. And so I said it to the bishop. I said, I'd like to wait until I'm 16 so that I'm older and can make a better decision. And the bishop was surprised by this response because he had been told, you know, my mother brought me in for the interview. So, um, you know, he, he talked about, you know, what baptism was a little bit. And, and he said, but you like it when you come here, right, to church. And I was like, yeah, you know, it's good. And, and he said, and you want to be baptized at some point, right? And I said, well, probably, yeah, yeah. And so he took that as my yes. And a few weeks later, we were in the car driving, and my mom informs me that we are on our way to my baptism. Wow. Um, yeah, I did not know what that involved. Um, I didn't know, I didn't have any idea of the commitment that I was making. Um, I showed up, they told me to put on this starch white dress. And, uh, you know, I, I, I stepped up to the font, like, the, okay, so a girl, there were three of us there that day, and a girl went before me to get baptized and she yeah. like they opened this curtain and there was like a bathtub in the church which I didn't even know about <laughs> and so this girl walks down the little steps on the girl's side and then on the boy's side her father walks into the font and he says a prayer and he dunks her under the water <laughs> I was like what is going on here and then they say okay it's your turn <laughs> oh my gosh and uh, so I did. I stepped into that font, and I, I, it was it was warm, but not warm enough. And it was it was tepid. And uh, I just I related back to the cold baths all my life statement that my brother had made. Yeah. On the other side of the font was a man who was our home teacher. Uh, he was one of my mom's friends, and uh, I knew who he was. But um, I didn't, I didn't know anything about him baptizing, and even maybe I should I say this? Yeah, he uh, said. Uh, so he asked my mom, "So who's going to confirm her?" And she said, "Well, I was, I was thinking maybe you could do it, you know, because <laughs> they used to do it right there at the same time." Yeah. yeah. And uh, he was surprised by that. <laughs> So um, I got confirmed, but it was a surprise for us all. Hmm. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of um, the temple. Like we're, we're conditioned from, a, from the time we're young to not expect an explanation or an understanding of what decisions we're making for, for baptism, for getting the priesthood, for men, for going to the Relief Society, from going to young women activities. We just go. We just go and we do as the Lord commands, right? We go and we do mission whatever two. we're told. Yeah. 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 So mission two. Yeah. Have, did you go to the temple? Yes. Yeah. So um, 
when you go to the temple, right, you don't have any, the temple prep classes don't tell you anything about anything that you are going to hear in there or commit to. They don't. They don't prepare you. Yeah. It just, like, just listening to that part of your story, I just, yeah, makes me think of the temple. It is. And the hardest part about uh, about this baptism that was not consensual was that it was thrown in my face for the rest of my life that I had made promises at my baptism that mm. were committing me for the rest of eternity. Yeah. And it's so frustrating that I had no idea, like so many of us, even even the, usually kids are baptized at eight. Yeah. Even an eight-year-old, a nine-year-old has no idea what it means yeah. to commit their eternity to a church. No, they don't. And that's one thing that I that I used to think, you know, it was one of those things that I thought was good about the church, of course, when I was in the church, because so many churches do um, baptisms when they're babies, when they're infants. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, our church doesn't do that. Our church waits till they're eight years old and they can make their own decision. Right. But I don't know any eight-year-old that understands what they're doing, you know? It's impossible to comprehend. Yeah. They call it the age of accountability, right? But it's not the age of consent. It's not the age of consent. Ooh, I like that. Accountability means, yes, they know right from wrong, but it does not mean that they are able to sign a contract. Wow, that is so impactful. I love how you said that. Yeah. Yeah, and it it continued, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, through through my young adulthood. I, I was a faithful seminary student, and uh, I graduated from uh, all four years of early morning seminary. Um, before that, though, uh, I was baptized at nine, and my mother got ba- ba- my mother got married, uh, remarried, at when I was ten. Yeah. When I was eleven, I was sexually abused by this man, and then at thirteen, I finally got up the courage and the recognition that something was wrong uh, and went to my young women's leader and she stopped me and told me that I needed to go talk to the bishop because he would know what to do. And the bishop did nothing. He asked me detailed questions and then he told me because my stepfather had been baptized between the time that it occurred and the time that I told him about it, he was not accountable. He was free of any kind of responsibility or accountability. And so uh, I was not, I was told that I needed to just not ever think about it again and move on with my life. I was 13. Wow. That makes me so mad. When I was reading that in your book, and then I'm sure you're going to go on from there. Like I had like the ragey, like you talked about the the disclaimer at the beginning of your book. That was a time that I had to put down the book and walk away because like it was, oh, it, it hurt my heart. Like, because to, to get up the courage to even tell, you know, at 13, 14, exactly. whatever, to get up the courage and then to get up the courage to you know, tell the young women's and then tell, tell the bishop, the bishop's scary, you know, like, and then, and, and to just be quieted. Oh, that breaks my heart. That made me so angry. I can relate deeply to your story because it sounds a lot like mine. My stepfather abused me. And around the age of 13, I was, you know, I told my mom, I remember telling her, 
you know, explicitly what had happened. And at first she didn't believe me, you know, um, but the way that it has been handled since then, um, there's, you know, there's a lot of similarities. So, mm, I'm and, so I, sorry. and I think, I think that's the point though, of our, our podcast though, is really that, that we all have experienced similar things, not that our stories are comparable, but we've all experienced some similar things or had similar responses to what we've experienced, which cause, which re-traumatizes us, which then later on we realize, okay, well, I was quiet all this time because I was told that was the right thing to do. And now it makes like, it makes me rage. It makes me really angry. And I, and I like the term sacred rage because I do have the right to be angry and you do have the right to be angry. Um, and we do need to, to bring awareness to this pattern of behavior within the church that even though they try to claim that it's not doctrine, it's a pattern that is so consistent across wards, across countries, across, you know, every, every aspect of, um, of socioeconomic status. It is not just Mormonism. I agree. You know, people will say that, but our stories become so similar that it's, that they can't ignore it. Yeah. You know, exactly. And, and I applaud the efforts of Sam Young who has brought so much attention to this issue and has been a champion for the survivors. I really, uh, admire that and and appreciate it very much for him to be a voice for us with us sam young was was my biggest um shelf breaker if we're talking about shelf breakers at all because um it happened actually long before i lost my faith in the church but i had never heard of sam young and then when i when i started questioning a couple years ago when i started questioning the church i listened to one podcast and they mentioned sam young and i was like who's sam young so i looked up his website the minute I was on that website, I was done with the church because there were so many wow. stories, story after story after story of bishops and stake presidents abusing children and getting away with it and, mm -hmm. you know, not being accountable. And it was like, the, this church is not from God. It's, yeah. it's so disturbing, right? Because you think this is your source of divinity and truth from the universe. Mm -hmm. And it turns out to be a dirty a dirty organization with dirty yeah. secrets. Yeah. yeah. What I regret about that Bishop's talk that I had was that he did not tell me that we needed to tell my mother. He did not tell me that we needed to report it to the police. He did not get me any, inform me of a, any um, counseling opportunities. He did not um, tell me about the statute of limitations. There was no discussion. It was just, you need to not ever say this again. And I felt silenced and I felt stupid for going to talk to him because how did that benefit me at all? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I actually escalated. Uh, a couple, no, maybe a year later, maybe two years later, I uh, had a seminary teacher who was the stake president. And we became friends because, you know, close, because we saw each other every morning and, and we joked around a lot. And so I went to him because my mother and her husband were preparing to go to the temple for the first time, for his first time, and they were going to be sealed. Uh, I was not invited. My brother was not invited. Uh, but they were going to go and make their marriage eternal. And um, I understood that he needed, that my stepfather would have to have an interview with this man before he could be allowed to have a temple recommend. 
And so I talked to the stake president just in an attempt to try to get some kind of um, support and, and accountability for this, what this man did. And the stake president apologized for how it had been swept under the rug in the past and promised to address it and promised to meet with me regularly to try to help me. And um, so I guess he must have talked to my stepfather uh, because I was practicing the piano. I was 14, 15. I was practicing the piano in the living room. And he walked into the room behind me and said, you know, that stuff that happened before? Well, I'm sorry. And then he continued walking through the room to the other side of the room and left the room with me sitting there at the piano going, what the hell was that? That was his accountability. He was allowed to go to the temple after that. The stake president never met with me again, never spoke to me about it again. And uh, not only was he allowed to go to the temple and be sealed, to my mother, but he, when he returned, he was given a position of leadership in the, in the ward. And so I recognized what this was and that it was that the, the predators are protected Mm -hmm. and even rewarded Mm -hmm. and the victims are silenced. It was a terrible realization. So as you've been talking, I had kind of a, let's call it an epiphany. Um, what we were talking about earlier with uh, the way that the church brushes things under the rug with um, with the age of consent, with not, so it brings me into the idea of we were thrown into positions as a, as a volunteer position, as a calling, never having any training to do those positions. We... Um, when we go into those positions, we, we figure it out or we completely flop and don't do a good job. Right. And so the whole idea is magnify your calling, but magnify your calling within the, the confines of what the church tells you is magnifying that calling. Um, but the thing is, is that bishops don't have training. And I think, you know, just listening to this, they don't have training or understanding on how to be a counselor. They don't have training or understanding on trauma. And so when they're called to this position, they think that their discernment is enough. Um, And their discernment is not informed because there is no information given to them to be able to handle such a thing. It makes them uncomfortable. So when they're given an out, by the church when the church says um you know you don't need to report this so they call curtin and mcconkey the hotline whatever and they're like you don't need to report this you know they're they're basically the risk management of the company where they're saying hey you know don't report this we'll deal with the consequences later if this person ever comes to a point where they can get um clarity and actually see this for what it is they think they're going to deal with it later they're, they're counting on our ignorance. They're counting on our, on, on us being, I've, I've heard the term saying infantile state. They're counting on us being um, submissive and being, um, being obedient. So this, this theme, it starts from the time that we're in primary. It sure does. 
they're teaching us that we give everything that we have and we don't expect anything in return. Exactly. But at the same time, we're, we're taught, we're taught to turn to these men. We're taught that they will have the answers from God, that they will, they are spiritual uh, conduit to the, to heaven and that they will give us the answers that we need. Um, And, and even that we should trust their advice over any other kind of professional. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. It's dangerous. That's what it is. It's, it's dangerous. Absolutely. And far too common. Far too common. Far too common. I don't want to, if you're, if you're not to this point yet, um, were you going to talk about how, when you told your mom about the abuse or were you Um, not to that yet? I'm trying not to diss my mom on social media. Okay. I get that. (laughs) And I can take that out that I said that, but. (laughs) No, it's okay. Uh, It's just that, um, you know, she is still. Uh, very much alive and uh, still a faithful member of the church. And she is doing what she believes is best. And I cannot fault her for that because I've been in her situation. I understand it. I have compassion for it, even though it does not turn out in my favor sometimes. Um, I think that she, in her way, she is showing her devotion to the church. Uh, She did, she did not believe me uh, when I, when I came up, I will go ahead and say it. Um, She, she just said that the day was going to come when I would grow up and move away and all she would have left is her children, is, is her husband. All she would have left was this man uh, to live with. And so she needed to stick by him. It doesn't feel oh. good. It doesn't feel good as a teenager to hear that when you find, no. you know, I finally got up the courage to tell her. No. So, and that, that, that was one point that I had to put down the book and walk away. Cause I think I told you on, on our TikTok chat that that is one thing that I struggle with, with my mom, like my whole life, my mom was an angel. Like she always did everything right. It was to the church. She's still, you know, everything to the church. She's very faithful member. Um, but then I didn't find out until I started digging into all this. And after I did my, um, my episode, when I, I felt like to heal, I needed more of the story, you know, because when I was a kid, I only had my little slice of the story. But, you know, I expected that my dad um, had been guilty of more than I knew. And so I started asking around and I found out like um, there was someone else, actually two, at least two girls that he either, you know, made suggestive comments towards or actually touched or whatever, both of them went to my mom and told her and both she, she didn't believe either of them. And, and that was just two. I'm like, there's probably more, you know, but I, to know that my mom knew, even if she didn't know about my portion of it, to know that my mom knew that he was dangerous Mm -hmm. and didn't believe anyone especially because my mom grew up with sexual abuse like that. Oh, wow. My mom. Yeah. And, and then the fact that she didn't believe, yeah, you know, Oh my gosh. Blows my mind, you know? Yeah. We weren't informed. And you know, I I thought that Oprah had like in the eighties had taught us all that this was not okay and Mm -hmm. kind of shown a light into the dark corners and that it wasn't going to happen again. But um, here we are. 
2023 and it still happens yeah. and mothers are still responding in this way. Yeah. yeah. I think there's an awakening though. You know, I think also, yes. um, I think a lot of, a lot more people are finding their voice. Um, because I think also when we're little and when we're in the church and our parents are supposed to be like perfect, right? They're supposed to be like the example that we're following. If our parents tell us that that's how it needs to be, we trust them. But the reality is, is that our parents are just as damaged as we are. Mm. You know, they're just, uh, they, you know, they have, their story may be different, but your mom grasping, was it, was it your mom that said that she wanted to, you know, that you guys were going to leave the nest, right? And yeah. that she was going to be left with this person. Mm -hmm. That person in your mom's eyes, I'm assuming is better than being alone. Yes. And overlooking those faults is something that the church has taught us all to do. Wow. I think it might've been Esther's interview mm -hmm. that you guys did where she said, and I'm not quoting this directly, but what I remember it, it struck me. It was something like children who are taught to sweep things under the rug, become adults who live there. Yep. Ooh. Yep. Wow. And yeah. Yeah. They don't ever coming out into the light, actually facing everything, actually doing that inner child work is something that is terribly hard and extremely rewarding. But the terribly hard is the part that people avoid because it's scary and because it means there's going to be lots of dark nights of the soul. And it means I'm going to have to face all of the dark parts of myself. It means that I'm going to have to face all the dark parts of the other people that have been in my life. Um, and so I don't know where exactly where I was going with that. I think the ADD myths haven't really kicked I in. I have a comment on it. Yeah. The, I, I felt like I couldn't go ahead and look into those dark corners mm -hmm. and really examine the truth of the situation I was in until I had a community that would mm -hmm. support me outside of the church. Yeah. Yeah. I felt like I could not do that as a standalone individual. I didn't have the strength. Mm -hmm. I didn't have the support. I didn't even know where to look. Yeah. But once I found a community that was also questioning, it made me feel like, like I could, I, I, it gave me the, the courage to do it. Yeah. And you can talk about anything, right? You're in the church, you're restricted. I can right. talk about these things and maybe I'll push the limit a little bit and talk about things up to a certain point, but eventually it's going to get shut down. Right. Where I was going with what I was saying before I, re I remembered um, is that my mom, when I've told her about the inner child work, when I've told her about um, doing EMDR, um, which is the eye movement desensitization reprocessing. Um, when I've told her about seeing a counselor, she's said to me, um, and I don't remember if these are exact words, but that it is too hard for her at this stage of her life that she's too old and she would rather just not deal with it. Wow. And I can, I can give her grace for that because she feels like she's in a good place. What, what I feel sad about is that she's not, if she, if she decides to do that where she takes that to her grave and never deals with it, how 
how has she been able to really become this person that she's meant to be in this life? How does she even know who she is if she doesn't deal with the past? Wow. Does that make sense? That's so powerful. I'm a completely different person now than I was 10 years ago, than I was five years ago, than I was two years ago. And it all has to do with not staying stagnant, not staying in one place and not doing things out of fear. So being in the church means I do everything out of fear or I, I don't do things out of fear. Right. So the people that are in there are still stuck. And so I have compassion and empathy for them. And I really hope that they will wake up. I hope I that they will the do same. that work. No. I feel the same about my family members, including my mother. Like she, yeah. she's stuck. Uh, yeah. Family members, all of my, any of my family members who are still in the church, I, I feel like I would like for them to maybe, you know, open their minds a little bit or open their hearts, but I understand why they can't. We've been there. It's scary. It's scary. Because once you open that door, it's hard to close. It's, it's impossible for me. It was impossible for me to close it. Can I tell you uh, about a year before my teen came out? I'm jumping ahead a little bit. I'm wondering if I should wait. Nah, I'll go ahead and say it now. Uh, A year before my before my teen came out, I started looking at outside resources for truth. Uh, I, I'm actually releasing a blog post uh, next weekend about this, uh, about this day I stopped believing. But I, I, the thing is that I, I went into this extracurricular study with the intention of proving that the church was true, proving, you know, and seeing, is this the source of divine um, guidance and, and, uh, and light that I think it is, or am I being duped? And so um, I went into the, the, the intention of fortifying my faith. And um, I just learned basically that I didn't need a gatekeeper for my spirituality and that I could have yeah. direct access to whatever spirituality I chose. Uh, it was very enlightening. I, I, I had a, a couple of study buddies uh, from the church, women in the church. Uh, we met uh, uh, at Starbucks <laughs> because we knew it was where nobody we knew would run into us or see us together. <laughs> and so we would meet and we would talk about these books uh, that we were reading and, and, and podcasts that we were listening to and just all this flood of information that we were trying to process and and we were like trying to understand it and trying to put it into the context of our belief in the church and it just wouldn't fit and um so we we uh we had some choices to make and um it but but uh it was it was a time of exploration and so by the time my child came out uh a year later, I already had one foot out the door. And so it was so easy to just say, we're out of here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to protect him, them. I call him him now. He's lucky to have you. Oh, thank you. I'm lucky to have him too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Many parents are, are not supportive. But, and um, yeah. it actually breaks my heart a little bit because around the time that I was 
gearing up to leave the church and I was becoming more, you know, understanding and um, compassionate towards trans individuals and, you know, people struggling in, in any way with the church, the, the square pegs in the round hole, you know, the ones that didn't fit in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, around that time, my, my daughter told me that one of her friends in the church came out to her as trans, but mm-hmm. her parents, his parents would never, you know, would never listen, would never be there. And so now, you know, I'm two years out of the church. I haven't been there, but every now and then they pop up on my, my Facebook feed, like, cause I'm friends with their mom. And, and I always wonder like, how are they doing? Like what a struggle, you know, because they knew that they would never have support from their parents. And mm-hmm. so the fact that your child had a supportive mother, that's amazing. It, it, it was born out of desperation. I have to be honest that I had been closeted for my whole life and I um, had a, a traumatic experience in 20, 2003. Uh, my brother did pass away and it made me reevaluate everything. And at that time I was 32 years old and I came out to myself. Um, and I had to decide what that meant because I had a very new young family. Uh, I had been married for seven years and I had two small children and I recognized that I had made a terrible mess, uh, a terrible mistake. Uh, but I took seriously the, the commitment I had made to raise these children. And so I did that, but with the plan that after they were raised to adulthood, that I would be free to take my own life. Mm. Like I just did not, I could not be a queer member of the church. It hurt too much, but I endured it so that I could, you know, make sure that my children had a mother throughout their childhood. And then um, I felt like I would be free to, to go ahead and do what I needed to do. Forgot where I was going with that. Mm. One thing I was, I was trying to find this in your book. It was one thing that I didn't underline that I wish that I had. Um, And I remember the quote, but I don't remember where it is. And I think it's in the introduction, but you had said something like, you know, you had a husband, you had these beautiful kids, you had this beautiful life. You, you, you know, were an upstanding member of the church. You had all of these beautiful things within your life. And you said, but it wasn't my life. Yes. You know, I had this beautiful life, but it wasn't mine. And when I read that, I, I want to say it's within the first couple pages, but yeah. when I read that, I put the fo- the book down and I turned to my girlfriend and I was like, oh my gosh, like I could say that same thing, like had this beautiful life, but it wasn't mine. So I wasn't exactly. happy. It wasn't right. You know? Yeah. That's right in the introduction. Actually, I do remember where I was going with that now because um, when my teen came out to me, it, um, as genderqueer, uh, they weren't sure what they were yet, but they knew they weren't straight. And I, um, I had been closeted uh, my whole life, as I said. And so in that same conversation, when he came out to me, I came out to him mm. uh, as a closeted lesbian, which shocked him because he said it was, uh, he, he was concerned about coming out to me because he was, he knew I was so religious and to think that keeping him in the church, even though it was against what was in my best interest, to know that that made it more difficult for him to come out to me just broke my heart. Yeah. 
And the thing is that once he came out, he made a, 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 a YouTube for his followers and just said, you know, this is me, I'm, I'm changing, whatever. And then the bishop caught wind of it and brought us in uh, to manage expectations early. Mm-hmm. And so um, I had been used to hearing the anti-queer rhetoric my whole life. I had been, I had internalized all the appropriate homophobia and I had, um, you know, I hated, I hated my life. I hated living. I hated being who I was, but I was trying my best to make it work. But when they started aiming that talk at my child, Mm. I lost it. Like I stood up to the Bishop and I questioned his counsel. And, um, after three appointments with the Bishop, uh, I took my kid out. And not only that, but I called my bishop a prick, mm, it, which was so empowering. It was so <laughs> like it claim I claimed myself in that moment. And I was just like, you don't have any control over me. I don't recognize your authority anymore. There is nothing you can do to convince me that this is okay. And yeah, so yeah. I knew I needed to protect my kid. Yeah. So I did. I think that was one of the most empowering things for me was realizing that no member of the church, regardless of their stature, regardless of their status, has any power over me. None of it is real. It is all power that we give to them because we allow them to have that power over us because we go to the bishop and we confess our sins, because we talk to the Relief Society president, because we have our visiting teachers come over and and you know, learn things about us and then take it to the ward council if it's concerning. You know, all of these things are are things that we allow, but we be, what we've been sorry, but we've been taught that we have to. You know, like these are these are expected um, processes that we go through to be able to be upstanding members of the church or to know that we are upstanding members of the church. It's a hundred percent brainwashing. A hundred percent. It is. We're taught we're taught that we have common consent. We're taught that we have the ability to consent, but we are told how to consent. Mm-hmm. And we are informed that we are not allowed not to consent. Yeah. Uh, we're it's taken away from us, even though they tell us that we still have it, because we're not allowed to say no to a calling. Mm-hmm. We're not allowed to, you know, make our own choices in so many instances, but we trick ourselves into thinking that we are making this choice. Yeah. And it is simply yeah. not true. Well, when you can, when you can teach a person, you can gaslight a person to a point where they can gaslight themselves, then you own them. Yes. You, you, you have power over them because we're all going to question our own thoughts and intuition and beliefs. If you can get a person internally conflicted with themselves, then externally, they're going to turn to you. That's, that's the whole point of religion. That's the, that's the business model, as Christina would say. It's a brilliant business model. Give us your money so you'll be worthy. Come and talk to us and tell us all your problems so we'll have um, ammo against you. So we'll have something to use against you and make you quiet. And continue doing this. Wash, rinse, repeat. Come to church every Sunday and re, re-indoctrinate yourself every Sunday. It's not... It's not... It's not uh, reaffirm your your faith you know by taking the sacrament again and and um, renew your covenants that you never consented to to begin with 
<laughs> it is you coming in and basically saying, I'm still yours. You still own yeah. me. And, wow. and I'm yep. proving that every time I walk into that building. Wow. Yeah. One thing when I, when I first lost my faith in the church, I was talking to a friend of mine who had already left the church, which I think you had talked about, Chris, how wonderful it was to have a support system. Yes. And that, that sounding board. And I remember when I first lost my faith, I was terrified because it's something, you know, your whole life and you know, everything, you know, all the answers, you know, the before, the, during the, after, you know, and then once you lose that, there's that terrifying, it's that existential crisis. I think that's why they call it that faith crisis. Um, I was terrified. I knew nothing. And I told my friend, I was like, I don't know how to raise my kids outside of the church. Like I was so worried about my kids while I didn't believe in the church. Yeah. While I, while I didn't believe in the church, I didn't know how to raise my kids outside of the church. And she said, good people exist outside of the church. And as, as obvious as that was, that's what I needed to hear. Mm -hmm. And she was like, she, she told me, she's like, I'm a better mother now. My kids are happier. Everything's been better since I left the church. And now that I'm two years to an, to in whatever years out, I can say the same. Mm-hmm. I'm happier. I'm more relaxed. I'm a better mother. I'm, you know, more open with my kids and I feel like my kids are happier too. I love that. But yeah, there's that moment of, I don't know what, you know, how to raise my kids outside of the church because they owned me. Because the church teaches you, you need them, need them for that. Yeah. We put our trust in that. And and I remember my patriarchal blessing um, being a huge influence on all of my life decisions. I actually included the blessing in the book in, in its entirety. And uh, yeah, and I loved that. I thought that that added a lot to the book. It, I, I loved that you put the whole thing in there. I thought that was fantastic. Thank you. I was worried about, you know, it's it's a little bit dry reading, but it's it's important, important information. And uh, I talked to a friend of mine who uh, has also left the church, who got her blessing about the same time from the same man. And she said, it's almost word for word the same. Yeah. Which I thought it was so personal to me. I thought this is a direct message from God. Of course, I need to obey this. I need to, I need to consult this document and all my decisions. And I need to make sure that my life is aligning with what God told me when I was 17. Well, why do we think that they're all the same? And it was fake. You know, they are. They're <laughs> all they all have the same structure. They all have a lot of the same information, but the majority of the information is church affirming. Yeah. The majority of the information, I mean it, it's it's all going to be church affirming, but Oh, yes. It's it's to to force you to realize that your life is supposed to be a part of this church that you, you affirm that you're owned by the church again by reading that document over and over again and, and trying to find the answers in it that you seek, like reading the Book of Mormon, like saying your prayers. You're, we, we've learned, I believe, to separate ourselves so far from our own intuition and give credit to something outside of ourselves that we don't even know who we are. We don't even know how to make decisions like like Sarah was saying how to be a parent because there's this guideline there's this whole whole structure of how to raise your children 
And outside of that, how do you how do you make decisions? How do you do those things when you don't have that patriarchal blessing, when you don't have that manual of how to raise your children, when you don't have family home evening, you know, which doesn't really help you to get closer to your kids at all when you read scriptures. (laughs) It's a lot of scrambling and punishing and yeah, threatening. Yeah. And and taking your kids to church every Sunday, yeah. like for me, it was a screaming fest. It was, yeah. you know, get your clothes on. We gotta go to church. Wake up, right? And we're all like trying to get out the door by the time we get there. Right. I'm so angry. How do I? How do I feel the spirit? How do I even know what the spirit is? I'm so angry. It's you what know? do you mean you can't find your church shoes? <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Go bare. Yeah, right. But then they don't look perfect. You know, you show up to church, your kids are in their pajamas, mm-hmm. right? That doesn't right. happen. So we all kill ourselves to make ourselves appear yeah. as though we actually have it all together. It's all image, yes. And mm-hmm. and our children's behavior and their appearance is a reflection on our ability as a parent, right? That's actually one thing that I, I did have underlined in your book. Um, I hope I'm not jumping forward too much. But at one point you, you talk about how much, how much of the church was all show. It was all show. And you said, I'm going to read it because I just thought it was worded so well. You said, so much show, no substance. In the end, keeping the covenants and obeying the words of the prophets left me feeling empty and depleted because my life's work was founded on busy work and distraction. It was a spiritual sleight of hand to keep me engaged, but not thinking, it, but not thinking and feeling for myself. That was yeah. deep. <laughs> it hits hard, doesn't yeah. it? Uh-huh. I know. It was hard to write. A lot of this is still hard for me to read, <laughs> even though I've, I've read it through a few times. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's very validating. Thank you. Honestly, like for anyone who reads through your story, they're going to feel validated. They're going to feel like, oh, my gosh, I felt that way, too. Oh, my gosh. You know, th- these are things that I can absolutely relate to. I've heard a lot of it. I just got an email this morning from my website of somebody saying mm-hmm. that exact thing. Like your yeah. story is my story. And uh, just, just uh, thank you so much for, for being so vulnerable. Yeah. 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 There's a lot of us out there. Mm-hmm. There absolutely are. And we felt so alone for so long, right? We yeah. did. Well, yeah. the silence makes us, makes us alone, makes us dependent on the church, right? Yeah. And finding our voice helps us find other people like us. Yes. And then we're no longer dependent on the church. That's why they wanted us to be silent. At least that's one reason. It is. I have an experience that I'm just, this blog post that's coming out next weekend called uh, The Day I Stopped Believing. I talk about an experience in my late 30s. I was a grown woman. I was a parent. I was a wife. I was, a, a, a by all rights, an adult, late 30s. And I asked a question in Relief Society a doctrinal question that had been I'd been struggling with for a while and I couldn't find the answers in any anywhere else and so I asked in Relief Society I don't recall what the question was but as soon as it came out of my mouth the whole room like the shifted and and shushed me and they used their how did I put it they used their social pressure to silence me and the teacher instructed me to take this question and put it on my shelf in the closet and close the door and that one day I would get my answer but that I didn't need to concern myself with it until then 
And yeah. that was, you know, that was another addition to my shelf. Uh, but it's very much social pressure to keep quiet and not question mm-hmm. things. Yeah. Well, and especially not question things publicly. Yeah. Right. You ask a question in Relief Society. So I, near the end of my time in the church, I um, was a Relief Society teacher. And because my profession is is in the medical profession, I, I tend to want to kind of see things through that lens, but also to help people to understand their health. I, I started talking to them about dopamine and the Holy Ghost and how you can't really feel the Holy Ghost if you're depressed. And so I was still kind of in, right? I was still feeling like I needed to explain things to myself and other people, but there were a lot of things I didn't agree with. And depression in the church is just something that's not accepted because, you know, you power through, right? You still, you know, you still keep up appearances. You still show up. You still, you know, you still do all these things, you you know, and in a way, I guess that's kind of good, right? Because you're getting out of the house, you know, I'm trying to yeah. see the good, right? <laughs> but the, the reality is like, um, systemically, psychologically, you can't feel the Holy Ghost if you're depressed. You can't have, you don't have that, um, that warm fuzzy that, uh, and I'm saying the Holy Ghost, but I'm really, you know, nowadays I talk about like my inner knowing, my, my intuition. When dopamine is low, it's really hard to have any kind of affirming feeling, feeling like you're validated, feeling like you have the answers, those things. So I taught lessons about dopamine and the Holy Ghost. I love that. As I was leaving. <laughs> <laughs> and and the, and we're always taught in the church too, that this is the greatest source of happiness that there is, uh, joy even. And that if we're not feeling happy, then we're not living the gospel well enough. Right. And we need to double down. Yeah. Yeah. So I think my my intention in doing that lesson was so that people would have compassion for other people who maybe are not so, they're not so good at keeping up appearances, Mm. you know? That was a gift you gave them, I think. I hope so. I really hope so. Yeah. Yeah, that was kind. I was a young woman's uh, president uh, close to the end, and I really struggled with what I needed to teach these girls and and what kind of message I wanted them to receive from their young woman leader. And I made sure to say things like, well, you know, if you choose to get married, uh, then, you know, this is how this works. And and I would just subtly, like, uh, introduce a little doubt or whatever and be like, well, if if you're blessed with children or if you choose to have children, and it was mm-hmm. controversial, but I wanted these girls to hear it. I wanted yeah. them to know that there, there are alternatives and that their life is not prescribed. I mm-hmm. wanted them to feel like they had a choice. That Just those words are a gift, honestly, because choice like we're we're we have all these songs about choice right you know choose you this day who you'll serve there's all songs there's things that you say but really is there a choice like there's a prescribed path I'm supposed to you know be born be blessed be baptized be you know a a faithful member of the church get married in the temple um, and then have 5,000 children and then go to the celestial kingdom and then bear 5 million more. Right. So that's my prescribed path. Is there really a choice? No. Like, 
you gave them that those words just that little seed of saying you have a choice you don't have to get married you don't have to have children i'm happy to report that several of them have come out since then oh wow (laughs) it's well that's the whole choice thing is just like getting baptized at eight years old like you're giving your eight-year-old the choice look you can choose to be baptized and have a party and have all these people give you presents or you can choose to disappoint your parents which choice are you going to make you know (laughs) disappoint heavenly father right (laughs) and your parents are going to nag you until you do get baptized right and all your friends are going to say why aren't you getting baptized and and your grandparents are going to say we want to come to your baptism when when is it yeah Yeah. but they choose (laughs) yeah (laughs) i think like just thinking about that choice thing. I don't think that I really separated myself from my from what I what I knew that my mom would think of me until much later in life. So if if and I'm and this may need to be edited out, but just that we don't we don't really have our own sense of self and what we actually want until later in life. If we've already been married by the time I was 19, when I got married, if we're already married and then we have children by the time we actually figure life out, we are also, again, stuck. Like what you were saying, Chris, what you were saying about, you know, you had your children, you're, you wanted them to have a mother um, through their childhood, but then you were free to do what you needed to do for yourself. And what that looked like for you was not like a longevity in life and happiness. It was, I will fulfill my expectations and make sure my children are safe. But then once, once I get to the point where I'm not needed anymore, then that's it. There's nothing else after that. Right. Because wife and mother is the fulfillment of your eternal destiny, right? Right. Well, wife and mother is your identity. You know, you you're in the church. That's that's the identity of women. We're expected to be a wife and a mother. We lose ourselves in in the service of others. Right. We lose ourselves when we become mothers. And I think the church really wants that. They want us to lose our identity. I completely concur. That is so accurate. That rings so true with me. I said some things about like my mom when she was, when I was in the church still, I ha- I didn't really say them out loud, but I thought them, I said the same, I thought the same thing about my kids. When my mom dies, then I'll be able to make these choices, right? Yes. When yes. my mom dies, I can, you know, cause I don't want to hurt my mom. Right. I don't want to disappoint her. I don't think we realize the resilience of both our parents and our children when they see that we're actually happy, when they see that we're actually living our best life. That's what we want for our kids as parents, right? We want them to be happy. Right. My mom, I'm sure, just wanted me to be happy. I think that that's something that we probably need to, anyway, we probably need to think more about, but I'm I'm just rambling. I don't think my meds are working. No, I think... (laughs) No, I completely agree. In fact, I I did want to address a little bit about um, the relationship that my mom and I have now. Um, We seem to have come to a place where we 
uh, are practicing some selective amnesia and we uh, just meet each other where we are and we get together and we play cribbage and we cook together and we watch Netflix and we just um, don't talk about a lot of the other stuff uh, that's so controversial. Although sometimes we brush up against it, we quickly move away. But the point is that she is is in a difficult position, in a dilemma, and I am in a difficult position. I'm in a dilemma. And so I want to share who I am with her, but it doesn't jive with her theology and her morality. And so we do struggle with that. However, I will give her total, total props and credit for making an attempt to show me love, despite the fact that she can't support me. And she has been so kind to my partner. She has, um, you know, just made sure to tell me how proud she is of me and just how much she she does love me uh, mm-hmm. in, in whatever way that she can. She is showing up for me in that way. So I have to say that uh, there is definitely some maturity happening on both sides of the relationship. And I'm very happy to have what I have with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Same. I'm actually going to see my mom today. Are you? Yeah. Well, she's she's picking me up from the airport because that's where my son is, is down in St. George. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. Nice. And you just said that she had left the church now too, or no? No. Oh, hasn't. No. Oh. So I'm going to go stay with her. Oh. <laughs> Are you going to church on Sunday? <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm sure she'll invite me to go. I'm sure she will. And I will politely say, hmm, I think I'm going to go to get coffee and maybe go to the bar. Yeah. <laughs> My son and I, when he came out and we left the church, we would go to Panera on Sunday mornings and nice. uh, we would toast to our uh, leaving the church and bear our testimonies to one another about how happy we were that we had left the church. And we would like drink the the sweet tea and the milky white coffee, trying to learn how to drink these things. And and just, it was so affirming and so um, community building just between the two of us and so supportive. But yeah, I think you have to replace some of the rituals and uh, Sunday mornings are definitely for coffee and scones. Yep. Yeah. And sleeping. Good God. And sleeping. <laughs> rest. Right. Yeah. Now it's a day of rest, right? Yeah. It really is. It really is a day of rest. Yeah. In the Mormon church, it's not a day of rest. It is no. not. It's the most stressful day of the week. Yeah. So tell us more about uh, kind of where you are now um, and like what things that you're doing. So uh, I did want to just talk about how I changed from being wanting to unalive myself to uh going ahead uh with oh, yeah. uh furthering my my uh aspirations and my goals and my intentions so yeah sure. I had a friend who was learning how to be a life coach and she needed to get certified and in order to certify she had to practice on someone and so uh practice I was coach about me. <laughs> I was I was about at the end I was I was close to being an empty nester and uh, I was a good friend and I was like, sure, you could practice on me. And so she did all the assessments and we made all the plans and the goals. And, and um, you know, she was just laying it all out for me, you know, like, here's what we're going to do next. And this is so exciting. And I was like, yeah, 
um, thank you so much for all this, but I'm not ever going to do any of this. <laughs> and she was a good friend. She had known me for more than 10 years. And she said, what do you, what do you mean by that? <laughs> and I revealed my plan to finish raising my children and then not be here anymore. And she, she was so compassionate and she heard me and she said, what if there are a few more chapters left in your life that can be filled with hope and possibility and happiness, true happiness, happiness. And so by the way, you look very happy. I am so happy. You look like a very happy person. Like the whole time we've been doing this interview, you've been, you've had this massive smile on your face and it's just like, every time I see it, it just makes me want to smile. I thank you. I have a lot to smile about now. Yeah, I love it on on TikTok. Whenever one of your videos pops up, it always starts with you smiling, and you're like, "Hi, folks!" And it's just so happy. It always makes me smile. I love it. It's nice to feel that way. It's nice to be out from under that rock. It really feels. I, I describe it even in the book as like holding a beach ball under the water for so long, and then finally releasing it, and it just flies in the air, and I just feel like this freedom and this this uh, just lift and this I just feel so I can breathe I can live I can think it's it's beautiful it's wonderful life is good so yes I did I did uh actually in 2020 uh, it was the senior year of my youngest and uh they graduated and in on August 3rd 2020 is my new life day I celebrate it every year it is the day that I drove a U-Haul away from my home in the suburbs and moved back home to Maine. Mm. Uh, I was in Connecticut. Uh, and so I, I drove back home to Maine and lived in Portland and, um, you know, began my new life. And it was it was terrifying and it was exhilarating. And I didn't even know how to occupy space. I had apartment to myself. I furnished it completely with everything that brought me joy. <laughs> and I felt like, wait, I'm allowed to like make noise and put my feet on the <laughs> furniture if I want and like mm-hmm. eat, you know, just eat what I want. And it was just so strange and so beautiful and so scary. Uh, but that transition was very important for me. And, uh, and uh, so I've, I've been living in Maine since 2020. And um, I have found love uh the love of of a woman who is phenomenal she is all that and a bag of chips love i just i just can't get enough of her and we were standing in her kitchen late last year and it just it just occurred to me it struck me that i wanted to grow old with her and that was the first time that i had ever thought that i wanted to grow old Oh, and it was a beautiful moment. And I, and I just treasure her so much. She, she adds so much to my life and I just am so, so lucky to have her. That's amazing. (laughs) But as far as the book promotions go, I'm getting great reception here in Maine and also in the ex-Mormon community. Uh, The TikToks are going great. I just started those a couple of weeks ago and uh, I'm getting a lot of great feedback and, um, Somebody even stitched me, so that was kind of fun. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> but um, I have a website that is 
jam-packed full of info about me and also my continuing thoughts on subjects about the church and about my leaving and about my deconstruction and my healing. And so um, I have I have a blog where I soapbox regularly and uh, weekly, uh, if I can, and try to try to keep the conversation going. Uh, I enjoy being part of the national conversation about the, the worldwide conversation about the intersection between religion and LGBTQ issues. Uh, I think we need to talk more about it in our families, in our religions, in our communities. And uh, it's, it's only going to foster ignorance if we don't talk about it. Absolutely. And, and it's, that's where the um, being visual helps because I think it's one of those corny little commercials that pop up sometimes, but you know, it'll have someone, a famous person doing something, you know, and it has a tagline of, if you can see her, you can be her, you know? Oh, yes. And, and I like that just because it's, it's, you know, being able to see it allows others to be them true, their true selves as well. So yes. what is your website? Do you mind plugging it? It's chrisdavisproud.com. Oh, okay. Chris, okay. C-H-R-I-S. I just restructured it just a little bit. Um, I included uh, uh, my Instagram feed on there as well as uh, appearances, local appearances that I'm doing and uh, book signings. And uh, it also has a list of other podcasts and uh, radio shows that I've been on. So, uh, and, and like newspaper articles and stuff. So uh, it's, it's got it all there. I'm really tooting my own horn, which is so hard to do. But no, you should, you should absolutely toot your own horn. I, I wanted that. And I hadn't, I hadn't been on your website yet. So I'm excited to check that out as well. Oh, good. Thanks. And there are, there are links to buy the book. You need to come do a, a book signing in Ohio. Okay. <laughs> Or Washington State. That's All right. <laughs> All right. I'm in. I'm up for it. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> I just had a member of the deaf queer community reach out to oh, me. Cool. Mm-hmm. And we are working on an event that will have an interpreter Love so it. that uh, I can talk about my book and reach the, the deaf community, which I'm so excited about. Yeah. I, I'm a baby signer. And so uh, I'm still, <laughs> still learning how to do that. But I'm really, uh, really excited to reach out to that that niche community and just, you know, bring the hopefulness and bring the, the empowerment that comes along with the message. Uh, I've had a few people ask me about an audiobook. Uh, yeah. I have not re- recorded an audiobook yet. Uh, I do have the intention of doing it. My publisher uh, advises against me, my reading it myself because I'm not a professional voice actor and it will cost a lot more in edits. Um, However, I think that there are things in the book that no one else can read the way mm-hmm. I would. Uh, inflections, um, pronunciations of places in Maine, um, the, the uh, CB talking that my brother and I do. I yeah, that, you know, <laughs> I love that. What's your 1020? You know, I just that. I don't think a, another reader is going to do that. And so I need yeah. to do it. However, I can't do it yet because I still can't read through the book out loud without crying. Yeah. Well, that's, there's, there's something very touching about the author reading the book. I listen to a lot of audiobooks because like I said, when I sit down to read, I fall asleep. But if I'm driving and or walking or something and I listen to audiobooks, I love them. Um, but I had listened to most audiobooks that I listen to doesn't have the author reading it, but I listened to that one. I think it's called, I'm glad my mother's dead or something like that. It was the the girl that played on Jeanette McCurdy. uh, Yeah. Yeah. 
that book was amazing. And her, she read it herself. And there were a couple times that she did get emotional, but I felt like that added to it. It added to the weight of like, you could feel what it felt to, to be in that situation. It's a so I think that adds to it when the, when the author reads the book. Did yeah. you listen to Bad Mormon by Heather? Gaines? Yes. Yes. <laughs> that one was amazing too. Okay. I actually recited the temple ceremony with her while she was revealing it in the audio right? book. Yes. <laughs> I loved that she did that. I love it too. I mean, so sacrilegious, but I just, I ate it up. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. There was a lot of things that she did that I was like, I'm so like, I love that she kept that in there. And and yeah, a lot of it can be very offensive, but that's, you know, it's, that's, that was her experience and you're allowed to talk about your experience, even if it offends someone else, you know? Yes. Yes. We are. We're allowed to speak our truth. Yep. Are there any other parts of your book that you want to share? Yeah, or, uh, or parts of your story, or oh, I didn't talk about my mission at all. Oh yeah, uh, which yeah. is in my book. Um, I I served in uh, California, and uh, the sisters made up ten percent of the body of the mission. Uh, uh, the elders were there were two hundred missionaries, and twenty of us were women. Mm. Um, my mission president was misogynistic. Um, and distant and judgmental and just into numbers, you know, get the numbers, flirt to convert, do what you have to do, sisters, to get the baptisms. And um, at one point I was, I was probably halfway into my mission and he was talking to a friend of mine who, who was in my apartment, who was another missionary. And he told her that, that the sisters in his mission were more trouble than they were worth and that if he had his way he would send us all home wow yeah yeah and so um I encountered a lot of misogyny and a lot of just um inappropriate and inequitable treatment of the women uh in in the mission field and I just did not expect that I still had the blinders on when I left for my mission and I wanted to serve Heavenly Father and and just give everything that I had to a cause that I believed in and I got out there and discovered the um just the structure was not what I thought it was and the practice was not what I thought it was and I kind of saw behind the curtain like the Wizard of Oz and uh it completely destroyed my testimony and so I had to uh, make a choice. I had to make a decision. And I, against the mission rules, I called my mother and I said, uh, mom, this is all bullshit. Like it is not <laughs> what they promised it would be. I don't want to do this. Can I please come home? And this was only a few months into my mission. And she convinced me to stay because she said it would be an embarrassment if I came home mm-hmm. early and that I would regret it for the rest of my life. And who knows, I may have, if I hadn't seen it through to the end and I, held on to that and I embraced it and I recommitted myself and reconverted myself uh, during my mission uh, despite the the negative messages that I was receiving as a woman in the mm-hmm. in the mission field I loved the part of your book where you talked about you you had told off I think it was your zone leader maybe or something like that it was a that, bishop in in one of the wards that I love that where you're like you don't have <laughs> 
authority over me. Or yeah, he was threatening to, if I didn't uh, continue to coming to the priesthood executive committee meeting on Sunday mornings, that he was going to tell my zone leaders on me uh, to get me to comply. And I just said, those boys have no authority over me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I saw the underbelly and it stunk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it well, so I feel like, you know, clearly I think, and now that I'm out of the church, I see that this is so obvious that the whole, you know, highly encouraging missions and, and making, you know, the, you know, saying it's required for young men and, and encouraged for young women. And it's just a way like that age is such an impressive, impressionable age. Most of these missionaries, I think, don't want to go, but they go because it's expected of them and their parents expected of them. And they're, you know, Mm -hmm. and while they're on their mission, it's either they fully convert themselves, you know, they've just given away two years of their life. So they're committing their whole life to, you know, to the church. Mm -hmm. And it's a way to just make sure that they're a hundred percent in as adults. And then once you, you know, get off your mission and you're in the church, you want to, you know, that that couldn't have been a waste. So you just stay in the church and hold on. And right, yeah. you're on the track. You're on the fast track at that point. So I think so often the missions are not about converting other people. It's about converting mm-hmm. the missionaries. Yep, absolutely. Say. And and it's presented as we want to train our future leaders of the church, you know that kind of thing. But really, it's definitely a brainwashing technique where you are not exposed to anything but but the church for a year and a half or two yeah. years, depending on how long you serve. But yeah. it's definitely brainwashing technique. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I read in my quest for truth, when I started looking at outside sources, I read the book Combating Cult Mind Control mm-hmm. by Stephen Hassan. Yeah. And uh, I still had kind of a semi-open mind, you know, about the church and was just curious. And um one of the chapters is kind of all about the church, our church. Mm. <laughs> and then I was so disturbed to discover that this was written by a man who used to be one of the Moonies. And I was so disturbed to discover that I had played the role of a cult recruiter as a missionary. Yep. That threw me for a loop. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you what made me leave the church. Finally, what put me over the edge was a was a video that I saw of a, a by Infants on Thrones. Mm-hmm. It was a montage of children in front of temples around the world, and it was playing the song Creep by Radiohead. And it kept repeating in the song, what, what am I doing here? I don't belong here. Mm-hmm. This is not, and it was saying oh. things like, there are no queer members gay members of the church and like by bednar and just showing quotes you know wow. so-called intellectuals so-called homosexuals so-called same-sex attraction and just quotes from from conference that were things that i knew i had heard before but i never saw them in that context and it just it just made me think you don't belong here mm-hmm. what the hell are you doing here yeah. you need to leave mm-hmm. yeah I read a book. It it wasn't that same book. Um, and I, of course, I forget what it was called and I forget the author, <laughs> but I know she had pulled a lot um, from that book, you know, and she was talking about the different aspects of a cult and she, yeah. And she 
added, you know, she put every line like this is what Mormonism does. And then there, there's this and it's like 31 different things of cult and all of it was what Mormons did too. I wish I, I wish I could remember the name of that book. It has a temple on the front and it's like shooting light out of it. I totally forget, but it was really, really good. (laughs) It wasn't a Martha Beck book, was it? No. No. Okay. Cause that looks, sounds like the cover of one of her books, but no, No, this one, I know that she, oh gosh, I'm going to have to figure it out. I know that she was on, yeah, I know she was on Mormon stories and that's where I heard of her and her book. And then I got the book and it was, that was right as I was deconstructing at first, and it was very helpful. Yeah, <laughs> like, oh, that's right. All in these your years, face. I was actually in a cult. That's mm-hmm. good to know. It's disturbing, isn't it? Because nobody yeah. thinks they're in a cult. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. my uh, my middle son actually, as I was kind of, as I was kind of chemo in the church, um, I he actually brought out the bite model. Oh, to and you? He, yeah, yeah. And he's like, just read this, just read the, you know, all the the points of the bite model. And I was reading it and uh, we had a really interesting discussion about it, but um, I found myself still trying to defend the church at that time Um, and, you know, and justify teachings in the church and things like that. But the, as we had that conversation, that was one of the most pivotal conversations that I've had to help me out of the church. So I, I really credit my kids for saving me. Awesome. I credit my kids for, for saving me from the church. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I have been a little bit concerned about the kind of reception that I would get from the public on this book. Uh, it just came out in April. And so uh, it was just before Pride. And so, you know, it really dovetailed well into Pride Month, but um, then there's the lingering. And so I I have received an, an amazing outpouring of compassion from the ex-Mormon community, mm-hmm. as well as from uh, other parents who are parenting queer children and uh, have this dilemma about, uh, you know, at church. Um, but uh, I did have, I did have a current believing member of the church approach me. She, I work in a bookstore and, uh, they of course are very good about, you know, prominently displaying my, my book. And, um, she had never heard of the book before she walked into the store. She saw the cover of my book, saw the word ex-Mormon and lesbian, and she came looking for me Mm. and she told me, I know, you know, what a big ally she was. She gave me a big hug. She smiled. She talked my language like she did the BRT to build a relationship of trust that we're taught as missionaries to do. Yep. And then we went to another part of the store where my coworkers weren't and she called me out and she, uh, she defended the church. She said that things were getting so much better for queer people in the church, which I don't have any evidence of that. But she wanted to make sure that I understood I was wrong. And she had zero interest in hearing what was inside my book Mm. and just stonewalled me on that. And actually, I was trying to tell her about uh, one of the endorsements that's in the front of my book from a current believing member of the church who is a friend of mine and how she this friend of mine um, 
gave an endorsement of the book, a high endorsement, but then also said that she said it motivated her to want to do better. Mm. And I wanted to send this message to this woman and she would not hear it. Wow. It was it was devastating. It was really hard to hear that. And and I fault myself because I opened myself up. I made myself vulnerable to her because she spoke my language and yeah. then she used it against me. It was painful. Yeah. yeah. And that's so often, you know, members of the church will say, well, it's getting better. It's getting more, you know, tolerant of gays, whereas, you know, I think oh. you I think you even. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> right. I think. I think you might have even put it in your book how it it used to be like a sin to even have the attraction, but now it's not a sin to have the attraction. It's just a sin to act on it. So, Chris, I just want to say, um, I think one of the the most um, the one of the best mental health things that I've done for myself is read the book uh, the the Four Agreements. Yes. When you when you're talking about this woman who came to you and and use the BRT and um, spoke your language to gain your trust and then tore you down afterwards. I just want to say that that's not about you. Mm. Yeah. That that's about her. Thank you. That that's her internalized cognitive dissonance. That's her fear. That's her insecurity. And that you being so open and being able to tell your story, breaking your silence and being able to share what has happened with you to the world is uncomfortable for her. She's not able to say those words to you because she doesn't understand herself, but it's not about you. And just keep doing what you're doing because you are touching more lives and actually opening up more questions for people like her, where she's going to regret doing what she did, you know, yeah. coming to you and telling you the things that she said. I go back and I, I can't remember all of my, you know, conversations when I was Mormon, but there are a lot of things that I know that I've said or, you know, rejections that I've made. Um, and I believe that I'm a really very empathetic and compassionate person. And looking back at those is very hard. Um, and I think that you've done that and she's maybe on the fence of it. The fact that she even came to talk to you to build that relationship of trust, to tell you how she was feeling. Those thoughts and feelings are not her. They're the church. Yeah. And as she starts to realize, I don't really agree with what I just said. Maybe then she's going to start saying, yeah, I've, I've said and done a lot of things in the name of Mormonism mm-hmm. that I don't really agree with. Wow. Yeah, that's powerful. We say Mormons got a Mormon, right? Yeah. They do. <laughs> they do. And I am actually working on another another piece uh, of writing, and uh, I'm going to include some of my examples of when I did that to other yeah. people as well. Yeah. 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 And that's that's something, you know, that we've we've all done. And I I want to say it's Oh, an episode that I actually recently recorded. It hasn't been released yet. Um, That guest talks about how there were times that she would say things and she said it it didn't even feel like me saying it. It felt like a robot, you know, just regurgitating what I was told that I need to say. And that's, that's so true. And that's, you know, that sounds a lot like 
what happened there, you know? <laughs> yeah, because we're taught to identify as this persecuted minority. And so anything that's said against us is attacking us and is attacking God and is attacking the institution. And we feel compelled to defend it. Yeah. An interesting pattern, I think, um, that I've noticed also is that as Mormons, we have all the answers. We're really uncomfortable not having the answers. And so, and honestly, that's dangerous because instead of finding the answers, we double down and we um, say things like, well, I have a testimony of it. Yes, which is supposed to shut well, down any argument. Right. And it does. It effectively shuts down the other person because there's nothing they can say to that. I have a testimony. I, I've received an answer from the Holy Ghost. Regardless of whether or not you have as a member of the church, that's the answer. And it actually stops us from growing. Yeah. It stops Ooh. us from actually evaluating, reevaluating our own thoughts and beliefs and behaviors. So we're not able to get uncomfortable with ourselves. We're not able to get uncomfortable with other people because we just say what needs to stop the conversation. So we're not given information or given um, thoughts from people that might jeopardize our own testimony. Wow. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And also the, um, wait, I wrote it down. Uh, this new not knowing mm -hmm. is so scary in the beginning, but I feel mm -hmm. like I've come to a place where I am quite comfortable with the mm -hmm. idea of not knowing because I yeah. know nobody else knows either. It's not like mm -hmm. I'm trying to play catch up and study harder and like learn all the truth. It's, there is no information on this, like what happens yeah. after we die or, you know, mm -hmm. what, what, what the meaning of life is like I decide that or I decide not to decide that you know I really yeah. feel so much more peace in that yeah uncertainty yeah with uncertainty everything is possible anything is possible yeah but with that the, was one of the I'm sorry that was one of the biggest things for me in leaving the church was learning to live in the gray area yeah because we spent so much of our life black and white right and wrong yeah and there's miles of gray area in, in there that you just don't know. And that's, you know, that, that faith crisis that happens for a week or two. But then once you get through the crisis, it's, it's that faith journey. And Wait, that there's journey only a week ends. or two. Well, I mean, <laughs> I think, well, there's the crisis portion and the crisis can't last very long, you know, but, but once you're, once you're more comfortable with it, you move through and, and you you learn to live in that gray area. You learn to live without knowing and that's okay. You know? Yes. Yeah. I agree. Before our, you know, like our patriarchal blessings lay out our life, you know, you're, you're going to get married you're in the temple to someone of the opposite sex. Cause mm -hmm. I don't think they've ever said, Hey, you know, in a, in a patriarchal blessing, you know what, you're gay. You're not going to get married <laughs> in the temple. You're not going to, you know, I don't think that's ever happened. <laughs> but, can you imagine? imagine? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that'd be great. They yeah. they spell out you're going to get married to someone of the opposite sex in the temple. They're going to be a faithful member. You're going to raise happy, faithful kids as you, you know, and then you're going to grow old and then you're going to die and you're going to go to heaven. And that's it's a prescribed thing for everyone. But 
it's there's such there's such a comfort living in it's okay you know it's not knowing it's okay to not know and just doing what you feel is right for you yeah yes yeah it's part of a a rebirth it's part of a rediscovery of who we are it's part of a a, a quest for um self-acceptance and also um grace for ourselves and for other people this is my new word that i'm working on grace Grace, Uh, it's not a concept that we learn in the church we're taught that grace is after all we can do there's that's that little edge that is Mm -hmm. jesus is going to help us get into heaven but we never ever taught to have grace for ourselves and and i dig it i like the idea i love the concept yeah and it's there's so you that's when you get into there's so much perfection expected in the church. And like you said, it's, it's after all I can do, then Jesus picks up the rest. But then you're always like, I could have done better. I could have done more. I could have like, and then you get into the perfectionism, the scrupulosity, the it's, Mm -hmm. and that's dangerous too. And um, I think I, I had said in, in my episode or in ones that I've hosted before, how much um, once I lost my faith and left the church, I was amazed to realize I didn't feel guilty anymore. And I realized that I had felt guilty, right? right? I had felt guilty from the time I could feel guilt all the way until I was 38 years old. And then suddenly I didn't have guilt anymore. You know, it's like. And the absence of it. I still do stupid things, but then I learn from them. And and it's not like I don't feel guilty for the stupid things I do. It's just stupid things. You don't beat yourself up. Right. It's because I'm 40 and just now learning how to be a human. That's, you know. <laughs> that, I address that too in the book. I say, yeah. I have felt so elite and special and unique my whole life. And I am just thrilled with this idea of joining the human race and right. being like everybody else. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Mm-hmm. And I can appreciate the beauty of imperfections in human beings. And I love yep. it. Yeah. Yeah, including my son. Um, Maddie Zom, she's a she's a singer that I really, really like. She was on American Idol once. She recently received or she she releases a lot of songs about faith journeys because she while she wasn't Mormon, she was um, heavily into uh, her Christian religion that she grew up in. And and she's deconstructing from that. And um, she recently released a song that said, where do all the good kids go? And it talks about how she was like a good kid her whole life. Like she was made a, a leader when she was a, a teenager and she, she never got to be a kid. And so now that she's an adult, she's learning how to be a kid again. You know, she's, she's like, I don't know what to do now. Like yes. I never learned how to be an adult. And she talks about how she makes mistakes and she, you know, she got blackout drunk once cause she didn't know when to stop. Cause she never learned, you know, like, she was a good kid her whole life, like you know. Yes, yes, our oh, a good kid, right? In right, right. <laughs> and Kendra, you made the you made the comment about infantilizing adults. Like mm-hmm. we do, our our development is definitely stunted because we don't explore these things in our, you know, teenage years or or early twenties when everybody else is, you know, experimenting and finding out who they are. We don't do that. We get married. We go on missions. We keep our blinders on. 
Yeah. And then when we finally go to order coffee, we don't have the slightest. We have no idea. <laughs> we feel stupid. I don't know. Buy underwear. Buy underwear. Right? Yeah. That was huge. Yeah. I, I asked for a drink at dinner the other night with some friends that I hadn't seen in a while, and they are not members of the church. But I was like, I'd like a sex on the beach, please. And they're like, what is this, 1983? <laughs> I was like, I didn't get to experience these. And this brings me joy. So right. back off. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Oh, a thought that came to mind um, with what we were talking about with, uh, you know, the person that came to you in the bookstore, it made me think of also the thing that I brought up earlier about um, having all the answers um, that we, we, when we believe we have all the answers and we shut it down with a testimony, it's kind of like, so I, I use medical references because that's what I know. Um, it's kind of like a doctor or a nurse coming into the room, telling you a whole bunch of things about your health condition, but then you ask questions. They're like, oh, no, no, no. This is how it is because I have a testimony of it. Yes. As if it's the fact. I can't answer your questions. Not because I don't know for myself, not because I haven't done the research, not because I don't understand your condition but because i have a testimony of it which shuts them down and makes them not able to not that i would ever say that you know but people ask questions to relieve uncertainty in mormonism we bear our testimony to relieve uncertainty in ourselves it's like testimony meeting where we convert each other every mm -hmm. every month right we tell yeah. we say that the things that we are taught are true so that so that we can receive a confirmation of it and so that mm -hmm. other people can receive a confirmation of it as well yeah. which is completely sentimentality and i don't i i just am so embarrassed that that i did that I, yeah same <laughs> i wanted to tell uh before we before we, uh, I want to make sure to fit this in that um, my son, my oldest son, got married last year. Uh, oh. He is still in the church. Oh. He got married in Utah to a an amazing young woman. She is phenomenal. She's great. I adore her. Um, but their wedding ceremony was off limits to me. I was, of course, not permitted or invited to attend the ceremony. And I had to wait outside on the manicured lawn to uh you know see the the couple emerge as a married couple and that was difficult for me um yeah. but uh, i before that day uh i i i flew out to utah uh a couple days before that and there was a bridal shower and it would have been the first time that i had seen or spoken to my ex-in-laws since coming mm -hmm. out and since leaving my ex-husband and I was terrified. I wasn't sure how they were going to receive me, how they were going to react to me, uh, how they were going to treat me. And although they're nice people, I understand that they are defending something that's very important to them. And so I was concerned. And uh, I was talking with my the, the woman who is now my partner. Uh, and on the phone, on the way to the bridal shower, and, and I was like, gosh, I'm so scared. And she said, you walk in that bridal shower like you 
own the motherfucking place. She said, you hold your head up high, no shame, no embarrassment, no apologies, and they will follow your lead. And Mm -hmm. that is exactly what happened. I think they wanted to embrace me, uh, but they weren't sure how. And so I just gave them the confidence and the, and the circumstances to be able to do that. And it turned out wonderfully. I, I received great support. Yeah. That's excellent. I love it. Yeah. yeah. So there are good, good examples out there too. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Um, one thing, one more thing that I had highlighted in your book, this story you were talking about, um, you had kind of talked about the, the Book of Mormon stories with the Zoramites and the Ramiemptum and mm. all for show and everything. But I loved this last, um, paragraph in this chapter where you said Jesus focused on leaving the 99 sheep to rescue the one lost one. Where is our compassion for the lost sheep who've been hurt and marginalized? We have an opportunity to save them as they race down the slippery hill and we can help them to avoid the violent, painful crash at the bottom by loving them into the fold and providing a safe place to land. Mm. And that's one thing like in talking about the church, they don't offer that safe place but like you say, we can, you know, that's, that's what we we're trying to do. That's what we should be doing is offer that safe place to the people that are left out and marginalized and need that help. Mm-hmm. I love that. Your podcast is doing that. It is allowing people not only to speak their truth, but to hear other people's truth and to be welcomed into a supportive community mm-hmm. that um, doesn't judge the way we've been accustomed to being judged and it is so comforting and I appreciate your efforts in that area I think just going back to that story the what was the part about falling down the hill or sliding down the hill yes I I relate it to a a, a, the earlier part of the chapter talks about uh, this big hill in in Bangor where I used to go when I was a kid and we would like make this jump and it was icy and we'd like it was like exhilarating and then we would crash at the bottom it was painful and you know uh, it was just an analogy. But I I I think there's further analogy to that that the in the church our our loved ones or the people that we went to church with our our community that we went to church with. I think they hope for this crash. I hope, mm-hmm. I think they hope that we will crash. Yes. So because we, because we've found a safe place to land because we found our voice that's threatening, but they hope for the crash because the crash means vulnerability and the crash means that they can come in and save us again. And it justifies their position. Absolutely. Yeah. That's so insightful. It is so hard for them to see happiness and joy and that we're doing well and succeeding outside of this organization much better than we would have in it and much better than a lot of people that still are in it you know that is so hard for them to see and that's not what they want to see because that that does not affirm their decision to stay it doesn't confirm their bias right 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 but i really am enjoying being a sinner me too. It's my favorite thing ever. It's my favorite too. Count me in. <laughs> I, wear, I wear the badge of a pros- of apostate very proudly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Like, I love that that you're speaking out. I love it. <laughs> it's good. It's a good platform. It is. Well, all righty. Did we have more that we wanted to touch base on? 
I think that was everything I was hoping to cover, uh, but I'm happy to answer more questions if you have them, but I'm good. I, th I think I'm good. Before I stop recording, I do want to say, I want to tell everyone, go buy this book, Worthy, the Memoir of an Ex-Mormon Lesbian, and visit the website, chrisdavisproud.com. Um, I think it, it's healing for anyone within their faith journey. It's fantastic. So thank you again, Chris, for being here. You've thank you been so amazing. much. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. For sure. And thank you, Kendra, for being on. Yeah. I'm excited to get started again. I've been in the process of moving and everything, too. So thank yeah. you so much for coming on. Thank you. Giving us more motivation to see more people and interview more people. Yes. Keep going. Thank you for joining us on Latter-day Survivors. As survivors of trauma and abuse, we wanted to provide a platform for survivors to share their stories. Many survivors of all types of abuse may be able to recognize and relate to the patterns of behavior in the victims, abusers, families, and friends of the stories shared by other survivors on this podcast. Often as we escape oppressive family, religious, and social constructs to a safer place where we come to see our abuse and all related issues, we are better able to process and begin to heal. We believe that when we share our stories with others, we can also help them to heal. It can take decades for survivors to find the courage to speak about these things. If it is so hard for adults, imagine how difficult it is for a child to speak up. We hope to normalize these discussions so that children can speak to adults earlier. As adults, we must listen and recognize the severity of the abuse, its potential consequences, and the need for action to stop the abuse as early as possible. Just knowing we are not alone, that there are other people who have felt and do feel the same or have endured similar experiences in life can remind us that we are not alone in this. Your time. 